Welcome to Black Diplomats, the dopest foreign policy podcast in America. I'm your host, Terrell Jermaine Stark. And today, we're going to talk about how President Trump has politicized the U.S. State Department. And joining us to break that down are two outstanding foreign policy experts. First, we have Travis Atkins, a lecturer on Africa, African and Security Studies at Georgetown University and host of the podcast On Africa. Joining Travis is Desiree Cormier-Smith, a former Foreign Service officer in the U.S. State Department and currently a senior advisor at Open Society Foundation, where she focuses on Africa, Eurasia, and Eastern Europe. What's going on, y'all? What's going on, brother? Hey, hey. I want to get into pretty much how Trump has fucked up our relationship with the rest of the world in ways that will take literally two terms of Joe Biden's presidency if he is elected uh, next month. But uh, to start us off, I want to get into this recent Atlantic piece from a former career State Department diplomat by the name of Michael McKinley, who worked at State Department for nearly four decades. So here are a few lines from that piece. I want to read them. Former Secretary of State Rex Tillerson used the State Department's policy planning staff, which offers the secretary strategic advice to institute a top-down approach to policy, in effect muzzling the bureaus usually tasked with developing ideas independently. He marginalized senior career professionals, often excluding officers from meetings of department leaders. And as an inspector general report has since shown, Tillerson's Bureau of International Organization organization affairs harassed career employees premised on claims that they were quote unquote disloyal as a result more than 100 out of some 900 senior foreign service officers including the most visible high-ranking hispanic african-american south asian and female career officers were fired pushed out or chose to leave the state department during the first year of the Trump administration. During his short tenure, Tillerson also reduced or froze the hiring of new civil and foreign service personnel. He eliminated or put on hold crucial jobs typically filled by family members of embassy employees. The State Department also suffered through a record number of vacancies and senior leadership appointments and dozens of embassies were left without ambassadors, career or political. So he goes on to say that Tillerson's replacement, Mike Pompeo, wasn't much better, uh, which we will get into later. So I want to start off with you, Desiree. Um, what are your thoughts about uh, what McKinley said about his tenure at the State Department? Yeah, thanks for having me, um, Terrell. It's great to be here with my brother, Travis. Um, you know, I think that article in The Atlantic is pretty damning. And I think it's important to underscore that Michael McKinley, like you said, was a foreign service officer for nearly four decades, 40 years, okay? So this was not some person who held sort of entry-level positions and who was loyal to any one political party. He, his career spanned both Democratic and Republican administrations. And that is what the foreign service is about. It is an apolitical, career institution, right? Made of professionals 
who for the most part are incredibly smart, dedicated and hardworking and go into this career, not for the money, but because they love this country and they wanna serve it in a way um, in a way that the State Department does in, in a unique manner, right? Um, and for many foreign service officers in particular, um, and those of color, particularly black foreign service officers, that's a really exciting idea. The, and it was the reason why I joined the foreign service, right? To be able to represent this country in a different way, to show a different face of this country, right? And so for me to be able to serve in places like South Africa, like Ethiopia, even in Mexico, and be this young black woman from Inglewood, California, who was raised by her grandparents and a single mother whose family came from the South, the descendants of slaves, of enslaved people, that is incredibly powerful. I didn't do it for the money. I did it because I knew that that lived experience would serve me and my country well by having me out representing our country and engaging with foreign diplomats and, and people around the world because it was an opportunity to show um, you know, some of that fullness of the diversity of America. When was your final year in the State Department? So I left the State Department at the end of 2015. So before the elections, um, I was a foreign service officer for six years. I came in through the Pickering Fellowship. Um, the Pickering and Wrangell programs have often, have recently gotten a lot of attention because um, they are, I think, one of the most successful um, pipeline programs getting um, foreign, service of, foreign service officers of color into the foreign service. However, it's also a bit problematic that whenever the, there's a conversation about race, diversity, whatever within the foreign service, people always look to the foreign, uh, to the Pickering and Wrangell fellowships, right? They always want to tout these programs as proof that the State Department is doing something. And so in response to this summer and the sort of reckoning that our nation was having finally with racial injustice and systemic racism, this administration's response in terms of the State Department was to expand the Pickering and Wrangell Fellowship. That is entirely insufficient, okay? You cannot just say, okay, we'll admit 20, 40 more people of color um, with an asterisk because I'm, I'll come back to that later, but let's just go ahead and bring in some more entry-level people of color. And you're basically putting them into a system that is broken without addressing any of those um, issues that that underscore or that push officers of color and particularly black officers out. And so until you deal with those structural issues within the State Department and within the Foreign Service, you're setting these people up for failure. You're putting them, them into a broken system. And the asterisks I gave to the Pickering and Wrangell programs is particularly for the Pickering Fellowship. I think it is important to note that the Pickering Fellowship in particular does not only define diversity by race, and that is crucial. So for instance, my class was 20 people. We are a cohort of 20, and I was an undergraduate Pickering, which they no longer have, which is another issue, but it was a, a, a cohort of 20. Almost half of that cohort were white Americans. White Americans. So let me, so uh, for those of us who aren't familiar with this, uh, 
about how they how, about how the State Department quantifies diversity. I would assume that those white folks who got in income was probably a diversity factor in that, right? That is correct. Income, but also geography. So if you are white from the Midwest, you qualify. I'm not saying that income diversity and geographic diversity is not important. But for the Pickering program in particular to be touted as this cornerstone program, right, flagship for ethnic diversity, for increasing ethnic diversity in the State Department is just untrue when you look at the criteria and you look at the Pickerings that have come in. Absolutely. Absolutely. Travis, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I think, you know, to go off of what Desiree is sharing, I, I think there's a few things. One, um, there is a tendency in many of the conversations we hear now to situate this as an outcome of kind of Trumpism, right, or the Trump administration. And one of the things that Desiree is pointing to is that these are problems long existent before uh, 2016, right? And that the fact that we actually even needed Wrangle and Pickering to begin with, which are now 20, 30, 40 years into their uh, existence speaks to this same problem, right? And even though these are institutions that are meant to be outward looking and related to our foreign policy, they really can't be separated from our domestic societal challenges, right? And that is a, a nation that has historically ostracized, otherized, and marginalized its, its Black citizens, right? And so the same challenges that we face in other parts of our society, you see it all across our government service, whether it's the House, the Senate, the armed services, uh, in some of our other organizations like the U.S. Agency for International Development um, and the State Department. And it is one of our greatest weaknesses, right? And so we love to tout this idea of e pluribus unum, you know, out of many, one. Our strength is our diversity. But if we really believed that, you would see it in the State Department. And one of the things that I can speak to even outside of uh, the State Department and Des can speak to thoroughly from the inside is the ways in which we are received overseas, right? It's particularly in Latin America, in Africa, in Asia, people who are surprised mm -hmm. to see us, intrigued and enthralled uh, to see us and what that means for what they think about America and how it can shock and change their perception uh, of, who, of who we are. I think the other thing is, you know, we can always, and part of our heritage is about a powerful kind of moral and ethical and, and justice and, uh, you know, kind of equity argument for this. But the other argument, which is as powerful, if not even more powerful, is the tactical and strategic nature of the strength and the talents with which these diverse communities bring to our foreign service and, and our foreign policy, right? And so seeing the world in a different perspective is in itself a talent, right? If you can see things that other people cannot see, then you can stop people from making the wrong decision, stop people from doing things that will cost people their lives or their treasure. Um, and I think that we haven't focused on that argument as much as maybe we could, because one of the things that I always say is that if you have in America, a society this diverse, right? Virtually everyone from every nation on earth 
is residing inside of America. And those people who know those critical languages as maybe their first or their second language natively, right? They will outstrip any linguist or any person that we can produce from the Foreign Service Institute, right? They will have an understanding of cultures that they come from better than any anthropologist from our greatest university, right? And so those kinds of insights and those kinds of skill sets are exactly what we need. And when we got caught flat-footed after 9-11, right? And that changed yeah. and shift mm -hmm. in the world, right? We realized, wait a minute, we actually don't have these things. And it's not because they're not here. It's because we have overlooked them. We have not cultivated their talent. And to Desiree's point, once we've gotten them in the door, we haven't created an uh, environment in which they could thrive, in which they could feel respected and honored, and in which they could be promoted. And I think that um, to her point, bringing all these people in the door, if they're not advancing, if they're not being promoted, if they're not rising to more senior levels, then you are creating essentially a bottleneck of frustration, uh, and then we lose all of that talent. And it is a loss in some sense for our community, but I think it is a greater loss for our nation because we're just that amazing and, and talented. And if you don't have us, uh, I don't see how you plan on winning. Absolutely. I am someone who's a recipient of State Department funded opportunities, uh, Peace Corps, for example, uh, also the Fulbright program and I know that as somebody who grew up in Detroit, I grew up in the inner city and not only just the inner city, I grew up in the trap, you know, and we both black folks on here, we know what that means. But for the folks who don't know who, who are listening, basically the trap is a lot of where a lot of nefarious activities take place. It, it, it means the word trap means a lot of things, but the way that I mean it is both my uncle sold drugs, okay? <laughs> you know, and so I grew up and I saw the worst of it. I saw the, you know, the raids from other drug dealers, the whole nine yards. But I bring that up to say that, why did I grow up in a trap? I understand America from the perspective of urban planning. Why is my community or why is my house the trap? It, it And I think about the uh, migrations of, of my um of, of of my grandparents who came up from from the south, right? And looking for opportunities. And so when people from Mississippi, from Alabama moved up north, they, you know, as you know, um, urban policy determined where these black folk were going to be. And normally those places were under resourced, they were underfunded. And so it was so my story and how I grew up in the trap is a story about America. And so I understand America's weaknesses as well. And I also understand when we think about Russia and how, well, more specifically, I would say the Kremlin and, and how the Kremlin exploited race issues that were already germane to America. They didn't create the problem. They just exploited it. Right. So I come from a space and from a place where I am critical of my own country, but I also want to make it better. What I find as a problem when we enter in foreign policy spaces, and I want to keep this to the State Department, I want to go with you, Desiree, uh, is that you run into a lot of white Americans who are representing America who don't come from uh, the wide range of, of experiences of being black in America. And so because 
they don't understand those experiences of being black or being a minority. They don't see our weaknesses in ways that other countries can exploit. That is exactly right. That is exactly right. Not only is it important to have that perspective because we see the weaknesses of, of America and the myriad ways that America falls short of its promise, but we also come with a certain humility that I would say a lot of white foreign service officers lack, right? Because we know that America isn't perfect. It's never been perfect for us. It's never been this sort of shining city on the hill for us or people or our ancestors, right? We're, but the promise of America is that we're trying to gradually move towards that, right? Um, and I think that is the critical difference in this moment. When it feels like we have a leader who is actively trying to prevent us from making that progress, um, to put it mildly or put it nicely, and in, the, in many ways he's actively regressing us, right? Pushing us back towards the good old days of segregation as someone in his party recently said in the Senate. So, you know, as a black person, we, we carry all of that with us. Desiree is speaking to Lindsey Graham uh, during the confirmation, uh, the, the Supreme Court confirmation. Yeah. <laughs> um, yes, I mean, that's important clarification. That's exactly what I was referring to. But I mean, the way that it shows up in practice, I think um, is interesting, right? So like, I'll give you one example. A colleague and I, um, we're speaking, a friend who's still in the foreign service, black male um, foreign service officer who has been in for about a decade now. And we were talking about, about the difference between, you know, black FSOs and white FSOs and how it manifests. Foreign service officer FSO for people who don't. We both had to do consular tours as all foreign service officers do. And as part of our consular tours, we had to issue non-immigrant visas, right? And um, we were joking that it seemed like a lot of our white colleagues approached the visa applicants with so much almost like ownership over these visas. And, you know, they were so protective of the United States and they didn't want anybody who could sully, you know, the image of the United States or anything like that in because it was this perfect shining city on the hill. And whereas we approached it with so much more empathy, right? If I'm talking to a visa applicant who is a single mother, like my mother, okay, um, and she has two kids and she wants a visa to take these two kids to go to Disneyland. She doesn't have a lot of money, but she saved up for this trip. And this is her, you know, her kids wish to go to Disneyland. I see in that single mother and her two kids, myself. I see my mother, I see my me, myself and my brother, right? Who, even though we didn't have a lot, my mom would save up so that we could have nice things like go to Disneyland. Whereas if you are uh, a white foreign service officers coming from a very wealthy background, two parent household, never knew what it meant to, to struggle, right? Or to have to save for a trip to Disneyland, you might automatically assume that there's no way this woman is going to use this visa properly. She only wants this tourist visa so that she can cross the border and set up an illegal life in America. And it's that kind of lens, that kind of empathy 
that black foreign service officers and not all of us, right? Because let's be clear, not all skin folk are kin folk, right? But some of us, because of our lived experiences, we just have a greater understanding and appreciation for experiences outside of the US. And that is something that I think should be celebrated. And when we don't take full advantage of that and, and that unique diversity that we have within our citizen citizenry, I think it does our own national security a disservice. I can say, Terrell, to, to jump in on, on what there's a saying too, and, and raise it to a level that looks at kind of our domestic and foreign policy dichotomies in, in a way, and in some sense, a, a false dichotomy. Uh, thinking about the article that we were talking about from the Atlantic and looking at an administration that is actually using our foreign policy related entities to create a domestic policy outcome and set of circumstances, right? Which Desiree spoke to with Lindsey Graham and this idea of turning back the clock, right? And so when you see um, the president calling the nations of Africa shithole countries, Haiti is a shithole, right? Um, the Muslim ban, right? Four of the seven of those countries being African nations. What is going on the, at the Southern border? Kids in, in cages, right? Shutting down our refugee acceptance programs, right? The idea that these people don't belong, right? And that they are other. Right? even though people who have the heritage of those nations are already inside of America. And, 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 and of course, uh, and I've heard Desiree speak earlier this week about the Hatch Act and some of these things, and, and maybe she can uh, enlighten us with that because I thought those were great uh, anecdotes um, to look at why these things are supposed to be separate and the damage that is done domestically for us when a president can turn agencies that are supposed to have an overseas focus into tools to implement an outcome um, inside of America. And the, the last thing I would say is the perverseness of the campaign slogan that he started with, 2015-2016, uh, the idea of America first, right? And the way that he has perverted that. Because in essence, in your foreign policy, it has always been America first. But this is not a thing that is unique to America. Right. Mexico's foreign policy objectives place Mexico first. Right. Kenya's foreign policy objectives place Kenya first. But the idea that he implemented with it was one of isolationism, was one of turning inward and separating ourselves from the United Nations, from NATO, from the Paris Climate Agreement and all of the kinds of partnerships that actually are what have made us stronger and safer domestically. And so it is a backwards and perverse idea that coming out of partnerships that give us strength across the globe are, will somehow make us stronger um, at home. And it's just not true. So uh, I want to follow up with you, Travis, on how do you teach your students about what's happening right now with our foreign policy at the State Department? Because Trump and any other American president is the commander-in-chief, as in commander-in-chief over the military. But at the end of the day, he's also our chief diplomat. And we know there's a secretary of state who primarily deals with uh, foreign affairs that's appointed by the, by, by the president. But 
Trump is supposed to be the, the chief diplomat, but when he refers to other countries as shithole nations or shithole countries, and he speaks disparagingly uh, uh, towards our, you know, towards American allies, and also pals around with the Duterte's of the world and Putin and all and dictators. How do you have conversations with your students, Travis, about how to best look at all of this? Yeah. Well, you know, in some ways we have conversations just like this. And I think that those students mirror, you know, maybe a decade or so ago, Desiree um, and myself, right? We got into this. We both love our country and are intimately aware of its shortcomings and what those shortcomings have meant to ourselves and to our communities. And so what I try to do is basically provide a historical context around how we got here, right? How the power relationships in the world make it such that we think anybody would care what another nation's human rights record is or how they relate to us in trade and other avenues of international um, engagement. And so that is, really looking at a history of manifest destiny, looking at the history of the white man's burden, right? And the notion that the West was imbued by God with the responsibility to drag into civilization, no matter how unwillingly of black and brown nations of the world. And those were the ideas that undergirded uh, colonialism, imperialism, and the, um, the rise of America uh, essentially in the world. And I want students to understand the place that the transatlantic slave trade had in that, the place that the wealth extracted from black people over generations under torture uh, played in that in terms of the seed uh, capital that gave us the economic engine to be the driving economic and military force in the world. Uh, and then coming out of that history to understand that though we have gotten rid of chattel slavery and Jim Crow uh, and formalized colonialism in the European context, the thing that we have been left with after generations of that is the idea that black life is inferior and that black people are unworthy. And I want them to understand that going in the door, right? And so when we start to talk about our foreign service, right? There's a reason why people are saying things like I'm going on mission, right? when they're at USAID or the United uh, Nations, right? This is a missionary kind of history, right? If you're in USAID and other places, other people may say, I'm going on a tour of duty. Well, what is that? That sounds like talk of war, right? Because military conquest, religious uh, proselytization, uh, proselytization is part of the Western context or conquest mm -hmm. of the world. And so I want them to understand how we got to this point. And it is not just by having people wash their hands or drink clean water or sleep under a mosquito net, right? We did a lot of terrible things to create the foundation for the nation. And then we want to act in an ahistorical way as if none of those things happened. Yeah. We got to this pinnacle of civilization right. uh, through the goodness of our hearts and the industriousness of our actions. Yeah, absolutely. So I want to read a short snippet from a New York Times article from June that, that discusses the state of the State Department's uh, diversity issues. And I quote from this uh, June 
article of uh, from 2020. The State Department efforts to increase diversity in its ranks have fallen short compared with federal compared with the federal government's average, according to a U.S. Government Accountability Office report released in February. The watchdog agency found that the department's minority workforce increased slightly from 32 percent from 28 percent from 2002 to 2018. But the share of African-Americans working in department declined to 15 percent from 17 percent. Hispanics in the department workforce rose from seven to five during the same period. So um, one thing. I also I want to talk to you all about um, the lack of engagement in Africa. Kind of piggybacking from Travis's conversation, I want to get uh, to you, Desiree, uh, about the the trouble and the racist um, comments of Trump's shithole countries remarks, and how that really puts us in a really uh, compromised position to deal with the NSARS movement. So, which which stands for ending the special anti-robbery squad, a country a controversial unit in the, in the Nigerian police uh, force with a long record of abuses. So, Desiree, talk to us about uh, that dynamic and how it's really hurting us with this current situation that's going on. In, in, in Nigeria, which is, you can make an army that's the most powerful African uh, country on the continent. Yeah, well, it, it, it is, right? It's the largest, most populous country on the continent. Um, it is the largest Black nation in the world. It matters. And this movement is significant. Um, and I'm sure Travis will want to weigh on, on this too. Um, but you know, it started off as sort of, I mean, in the call to end SARS is not new, first of all. Um, SARS has always been problematic, always been, um, you know, engaging in sort of extrajudicial uh, injuries and killings and other, um, you know, violations of human rights, essentially. This latest movement, I think, is unique similar to how this summer, like the killing of George Floyd, it was kind of just like the last straw, right? I feel like it's similar in that regard. So yes, SARS is a, is a pivotal, um, is a pivotal sort of target of these protests, but it's not just SARS. It is police accountability in general. It is government accountability. It is governance issues. It is the young people of Nigeria being fed up with a government that does not work for them, that does not serve their interests, and with security force that can kill them with impunity. Does that sound familiar? Yes, right? Mm -hmm. So in that regard, it, there are definitely parallels, and not just here in the US, but we also see it across Europe um, and in Latin America, right? These institutions of the state, state that are charged with enforcing security or enforcing peace that can operate um, with such impunity and with complete disregard generally for the most marginalized lives. And that, um, you know, that cuts across in Nigeria. It's not just the low income youth that have been 
terrorized and targeted by SARS. It's everybody. It is wealthy Nigerians who are being profiled for driving a nice car and then being um, extorted for money to not go to jail or to prevent them from being tortured. It is the kidnapping of young Nigerian men um, who, are, who have been disappeared by SARS for scrupulous charges and never found. You know, you cannot have government institutions operate like that in a democracy. And so um, the youth of Nigeria are finally fed up. They're standing up and they're saying no more. We're not gonna stand for this. And I think, um, you know, President Buhari finally made an address to the nation, which many uh, would say was entirely insufficient. Um, and the US government was late to the game in terms of making some kind of statement. They finally, sorry, that's my dog, Bobby Brown. Um, they finally did make a statement and it was pretty milk toast, right? It was pretty bland. It was pretty standard. Um, and it took, I don't know this for sure because I'm no longer with the State Department, but I part of the reason why it took them so long to finally say something is because they realized that we're grappling with similar issues here. And so they had to figure out how to walk that line, right? How can they say something um, in defense and support of uh, peaceful protesters who are being um, terrorized and killed by police forces without seeming hypocritical when we see what's happening on our streets here. So, and again, this is nothing new, right? This did not race relations. Um, police brutality did not start under Trump, but it has gotten worse. <laughs> and, you know, in the past, some would call out the US on our hypocrisy. Um, for making statements on an issue that we were also grappling with here. And I think the way we were able to reconcile that was that by saying, by having some kind of humility and admitting that we're not perfect, but we are trying. We, our civil society, our institutions are all working towards progress. While we can still say that the people of America and civil society are still trying to work for a more just and more equal society, we can no longer say that our government <laughs> is doing the same, right? So in that regard, it, it is a bit hypocritical for us to engage in these matters overseas while we are completely ignoring them or this administration is actually being counterproductive in these, in these issues at home. So Travis, Desiree is right on point. So our institutions have failed. You can name any news outlet, including the route where I work full time that points out all of these disparities and abuses of, of policing in our own country. But not only policing is also in our in America's prison system, be it at the state level, federal level or private level. And particularly when you're dealing with the caging of children. Right. So right now what, what you do see within our civil society are the major protests so in many respects you have black folk who are on the streets they are they're uprising and in fact you see a lot of support and so cause of solidarity from activists with the SARS movement in Nigeria from America but you have a president who let's just say it, he's flat out racist and there's no inobjective way that you can say it because objectively he is racist. Okay, let's let's that's that's what it is. And so, how weak does that position America to work with Nigeria? Not only on this issue, but in general, 
America has not thoroughly engaged the continent of Africa, particularly when it comes to business development, when it comes to uh, supporting its technology, uh, its, its technology industries, right? Because it's come from a position of foreign aid. Oh, you need something as opposed to uh, to looking at it as a, as an equal partner, right? And so, overall, what's what what what's the impact of Trump's racism? Uh, when it comes to responding to an issue like this, like with, with SARS? Yeah, well, first, Desiree was brilliant. And so I'll just use that as the foundation of, of what I would respond with. And that and that's really a return to this historical context that I was referring to earlier, because one of the things that you talk about the linked fate of Black people, right, all over the world. Um, and one of the things that links us together is not just ancestry, it's not just phenotype, it's not just history. It is about the enduring um, nature of anti-Blackness, right? That is found in every hem hemisphere and on every continent. And so when you look at that, it's clear that the same historical narrative that created Jim Crow apartheid, excuse me, Jim Crow segregation created South African apartheid, right? The same thing that created African colonies is what created American ghettos, is what created Brazilian favelas, right? And so this idea that this group of people unworthy and always destined to be placed at the bottom of the racialized caste system of all of these societies is really at the root of this. And I think the other piece of it is that it's not so much that we have a history that makes it hard for us to speak with a moral voice. The real problem is not just the history, but the current inaction or the current antagonism as Desiree was pointing out, right? So there are some ways in which, hey, if I've had a house that has burned down before, I could talk to you about ways that you could protect your house. But it would be very hard for me to do that if I'm trying to tell you that while my house is on fire, <laughs> and I think that is really part of, of the problem. And so to the extent that we're not doing it at home, I think you guys are both right, that we're on shaky ground when we want to talk about these things abroad. And, and in, in many ways, that spills over even into, you know, the pandemic and COVID-19 and, you know, people talking about, well, what is America going to do to help, you know, developing nations deal with covid when in fact, the United States is number one in cases and in deaths in the world, right? And so this, in some ways, is analogous to what we're talking about. And Travis, Travis, I'm sorry, I, I have to, I, like, it's just biting at me. I have to interject is that these so-called shithole countries, when you think about Rwanda, you think about a number of other places on the continent, are doing a better job, a much better job of managing COVID-19 than we are. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. And people were so surprised. It's like they kept waiting for Africa to fail. Right. And there was these I mean, if you look at some of the headlines um, and some of the media narratives, it's really racist. Frankly, it's like Africa's caseload is still low, but it won't be for long. You know, like how could these black people manage this pandemic? How can these niggers handle this pandemic is what the fuck they saying. So I, I, I'm going to just come out and say it, but go, but go ahead, Desiree. I, I'm, I'm throwing, but that, that's what they, but go ahead. <laughs> yeah. 
you like my little uh, alter ego here, my anger with right. You know, from like you know, like is it is that Peel and um, what's that show, the comedy show? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Angry Obama. <laughs> with the Angry Obama, I'm the I'm I'm the angry Desiree that's saying what the fuck is on your mind. But go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> You know I'm telling the truth. But go ahead. You know the other thing I would say though too, Terrell, is that like when you think about the posture of the Trump administration, right? And we we, we look at this long history of the U.S.'s negligence, ignorance, and and kind of remove from Africa, mm -hmm. right? In some ways, is it is it is it actually a bad thing? to have people of this ilk with this kind of mindset about the region and about the people be removed from it, right? How much engagement do we want to have right. with Africa under an administration and under a state department in which it's fine to say that nations are filled with shithole countries, in which it's fine to suggest uh, racist ideas about broad swaths of, of humanity. And so in some ways, we should probably be thankful um, that the engagement with Africa hasn't been as deep um, in this administration, uh, especially for those of us, which is all of us here, who have such love and regard for uh, Africa and the people of the diaspora, wherever they are found in the world. So Desiree, Claire, talk to us about when you first got into the State Department, because if it's six years, um, you left in 2015. So you, whereas most most of your time was under the Obama administration, correct? It was all under the Obama administration. So you obviously are dealing with somebody who's a thinker that many people said was a thinker to a fault because he people accuse him of overthinking, which is. I think is a racist implication because, you know, people love to talk about how Negroes don't think about things, but Obama was considered an overthinker. That's another conversation. But how do you deal with somebody like a Trump who constantly says racist things all the time, you can't predict, versus somebody like Obama who is very measured, somebody who is incredibly calculated because you had the luxury of dealing with somebody who was a thinker somebody who, who somebody who by all measures was considered to be a a politically brilliant um so what 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 i don't know if you have people or friends who are in the state department right now but what types of conversations do you have with them who you know who, who are dealing with this president who's a polar opposite from obama yeah, I mean, I think the way that it manifests is, um, I mean, in many ways, right? But I think um, one major result of having uh, a president who is not necessarily a thinker, as you put it, is that we have a um, we have a foreign policy that's really disjointed, to put it nicely. Um, there's a lot of incoherence within our foreign policy. Um, and that makes it hard for our diplomats to do their job. Another way it manifests is in the appointments of people um, under this administration. So not only was President Obama um, you know, a brilliant thinker and a very, I think, um, strategic president and someone who cared about foreign policy, he also appointed really smart people with really relevant experience to a lot 
of um, high level positions within the State Department, within the NSC, and then even some of our ambassadors. That is not necessarily the case with this administration. Um, we've heard it time and time again. I mean, the Atlantic article talks about how this administration values loyalty over everything else. And that is dangerous when we're talking about foreign policy and national security. When you would rather go with someone who you quote unquote can trust to be loyal to you rather than someone who has the relevant experience to actually pursue um, an effective foreign policy or strategy, that obviously is not gonna work out well. Um, so we've seen it in the political appointments. We've also seen it in the sort of intentional and systemic undermining of the State Department because of this notion that you can't trust these bureaucrats, right? They're all loyal to Hillary Clinton, even though they're apolitical. And you know, with the ex exception of those that just joined recently, they've served across different Republican and Democratic administrations. And that, that is what makes our foreign service, our civil service so unique and so powerful and so effective is that it is an apolitical institution that swears an oath of allegiance to the constitution, not to a political party, regardless of their own political allegiance, right? So they can, you know, a foreign service officer, an ambassador can be a registered Republican, but serve faithfully under a Democrat president because that is what they signed up to do. So Desiree, uh, tell us why Americans should care about a stabilized State Department that is apolitical and one that serves the Constitution as opposed to serving a particular president, i.e. Trump, who I think people, he, he considers himself almost like a deity to, to, to a certain extent. But tell us from your own experience, what why should Americans care that the State Department under Trump is politicized, and if he wins another election, how that uh, another four years of politicization can further destabilize America's standing in the world? That's a packed question. There's a lot there. Um, I will. I think the easiest way to explain it is by using the analogy of the Department of Justice. Right. We have seen this administration the Department of Justice. Um, in ways that were previously unheard of, right? Um, the Department of Justice is meant to uphold the law and the constitution. But for whatever reason, this administration um, and this president in particular almost seems to think that it is his private law firm. In that same regard, by politicizing the State Department, he's basically dispatching our diplomats to do his own foreign policy preferences, which may not necessarily be in the best interest of America. Um, and that is dangerous. That is dangerous. And that's not to say that, you know, different administrations in the past didn't have different national security priorities or foreign policy priorities. But I don't think there was this questioning of whether or not a president was putting his own priorities or his own interests ahead of the country's interests. And when we have that very real concern, any semblance of politicization of any of our US government agencies, but particularly, particularly an agency um, that is meant to represent us abroad, that should be concerning to Americans. 
Absolutely. So, so Travis, as somebody who teaches, I really want to get your your thoughts on how we should educate the public about the importance of diplomacy, because I think that is one of my challenges. For example, how do I explain the Iran deal? Why should that matter to Americans? Why should Americans care about the New START treaty, which is a you know a nuclear arms treaty that's currently Trump is completely fucking up because conversation that ought to be had in closed doors, you know we're having them on Twitter. How do we explain why foreign policy should matter to the average American who feels as though this is a foreign world that they have no connection to at all? Yeah. Well, I think, you know, it goes back to a lot of what we've covered in the conversation, and that is to eviscerate the false uh, narrative that foreign policy and domestic policy are two totally different things, right? There is no foreign policy issue that doesn't have a domestic policy analog, right? If there's a war in a far flung place, well, we could have interest in that region. Or people in rural America could have their sons and daughters sent off to that place to have a war, right? Uh, the COVID-19 pandemic, right? Coming out of Wuhan, China, guess what? It's called global public health for a reason, right? Because it encompasses the entire globe. 2014, 2015, when the Ebola crisis took place in West Africa, several people that were traveling in that region returned to America and that virus shows up on our shores. And so I think one of the things in the education piece is to make people understand that yes, there are oceans between us. Yes, there are language barriers and thousands of miles in flights and travel that one would have to take to get to other places but there are many issues in terms of e economics, disease, warfare, climate that encompass all of our well-beings and, and all of our lives. And so I think having people understand that at the base level um, is, is, where, is where we begin. And that's even hopefully before anybody gets to grad school or undergrad, they would have a sense of that. But unfortunately, the, failure, the failures of our school system mean that they don't, right? And I have students all the time who are in their second year of grad school. And I'm saying, well, tell me why you wanted to take this US Africa policy course. And they say, well, Professor Atkins, you know, I don't know anything about Africa. And I'm saying, well, wait a minute, how did you get to your second year of grad school at the Georgetown Walsh School of Foreign Service? And you're saying to me that you have no knowledge of the second largest continent on the earth. And then I say, well, tell me what you do. And they say, oh, I'm the senior director for West African affairs at the blah, 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 blah agency. And you're like, oh my God, right? This is a nightmare. And so I'm seeing the problem from an earlier stage, right? And so when Desiree and I are in our professional uh, capacity, you know, obviously we have many brilliant colleagues, but we run across, I would argue, probably for both of us, quite a few of these folks who are in charge of things that they are not well equipped uh, to, be, to be in charge of. And so these are areas that we're talking about that, that create danger for our nation um, at home and abroad. These are white people? Uh, many of them are. Because now I have to say, because here, here's the thing. I, 
I, I just know that for all of us, I just couldn't see us being in a position where we could be, where we could have those lapses and get away with it. I'm just saying, but 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 anyway, De Desiree, you've been, you were in the State Department for six years. Your message to Americans about the importance of the work you do, what is it? We prevent wars. <laughs> you want a strong diplomatic corps because diplomacy should always be the first line of defense right? Um, we, don't, we don't want any more wars. We need diplomats who are capable, who are effective, and who understand the way that the world works and appreciates our position in the world um, and approaches it with some humility. And that would make us safer. Um, that would make us stronger. Um, and that'll help restore a lot, some of the credibility we've lost over these last four years under this administration. But diplomacy matters. I mean, um, you know, it, it, we, yeah, it, it matters. And I think the State Department recognized, well, it used to recognize that it did a poor job of public diplomacy here at home. And I hope that if Joe Biden wins, one of the things that the State Department will embark on in a serious way, is helping to tell the story of the Foreign Service and the importance of diplomacy. Because I think um, I think it would help uh, the American people understand better what we do and why it's important. But I think it'll also help us recruit a more diverse diplomatic core, right? Because part of the problem is recruitment, right? How are you gonna recruit a diverse swath of people to join the Foreign Service when most of the country doesn't even know what the Foreign Service is. Right, absolutely. So final thoughts, Travis. No, I, th I think Desiree nailed it. Um, and I think we kind of tag team this idea of why what happens overseas is important for us at home. Uh, thank you so much for having us. Yes, thank we're you. I was able to do this with, with Desiree and to have a chance to meet you and get a chance to listen to the mind behind all this brilliant journalism that we've been seeing over the last several <laughs> Yes, yeah, so exactly. thank, thank you very much. Thank you both for coming on because I use this platform to amplify the voices of black folks and I'm growing it because it's named Black Diplomats and people ask me, why do I name it Black Diplomats? It's, it's not an exclusionary uh, space. It's one that amplifies us and put us at the table and helps and, and lead the table because major networks do not do it. And so we have to do it for ourselves. And as this platform grows and it gains popularity and it gains more downloads, I want this to be a space where we all can be our authentic selves and we can tell the truth about this country because ultimately I consider myself to be more on the radical side of black liberation and, and, and the black power movement. Uh, and I think that many of you all intersect and agree with many of those spaces as well. But it's a space for us to really uh, talk about the authentic uh, black approach or the non-white approach and be able to discuss America and without the white gaze in a way that empowers us to help our country and to, and to infiltrate these spaces and to claim space in these spaces. Because at the end of the day, this is our country and we know that when we put our voices to the table that uh, we make it much better. So I thank you all for sharing your own brilliance 
uh, for, for Black Diplomats and giving our platform the opportunity to grow with your powerful voices. It was a joy, man. Thank you. Definitely so. Travis Atkins, lecturer on African and security studies at Georgetown University and host of podcast on Africa, as well as Desiree Cormier-Smith, the former uh, foreign service officer in the U.S. State Department and currently a senior advisor at the Open Society Foundation. Thank you all. Thank you. Thank you. All right. We did a show, y'all. Thank you for listening to the latest episode of Black Diplomats. We appreciate the support. Please go to Apple iTunes, Spotify, or whatever your favorite podcast platform is and rate us with a five-star review. And go to our Patreon page where you can find us under Black Diplomats and donate to our show. We're eager to grow the podcast and give you even more episodes, but we need your support. And a big shout out to our 10 Patreons, Suni Rucker Chang, Sarah Casey, Elijah Below, Garrett Booz, UB Drew, Catherine Killebrew, Catherine Yemayanov, Jermaine D. Cook, Mark Lacey, and Ashanti Golar. Thanks for listening. I'm Terrell Jermaine Starr, signing off.